Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Got Mental Health Podcast. I am your co-host, Rachel Cove. I'm the owner of Transformational Solutions, a life coaching business that specializes in addiction, trauma, and self-destructive behaviors. I'm an author, podcast host, group facilitator, speaker, and co-creator of the online eight-week self-development course, The Visions Program. I'm your co-host, Arthur Mogilevsky, a business entrepreneur, dad, animal activist, and owner of AM Healthcare, California's leading dual diagnosis and mental health treatment centers, focusing on comprehensive and immersive treatment experiences with a network of facilities and dedicated professionals committed to providing each and every client the intimacy and care they so richly deserve. This is the Got Mental Health Podcast, a fun, open, and safe space where we talk to experts, thought leaders, and professionals in the mental health field. Our goal is to educate, inspire, and empower people to take care of their mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. Join us weekly to hear Arthur talk like this as we talk all things mental health. Follow us wherever you go to get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review as it really supports our show. Thanks guys. And keep listening to Arthur. Welcome back, everyone, to the Got Mental Health podcast. My name is Rachel Cove, and I am here along with my partner in crime, Arthur Mosibel. Mogilevsky, Rachel. Thank you. Uh, today, we are interviewing the wonderful Keith Bradley. Hi, Keith. Hi. Keith Bradley is often referred to as the interventionist with a heart. Through his company, Love in Action, Keith approaches interventions from a spiritual perspective. Since 2007, using a model based upon and expanded from the Love First Intervention Method, Keith has successfully facilitated over 750 interventions with a success rate above 75%. Wow, I could like digest that for a second. Keith's passion for recovery, his personal experience recovering from a dual addiction, and his belief that if a guy like him could achieve sobriety, anybody can, allows him to communicate heart-to-heart with those who are actively suffering from the disease of addiction. After a 32-year career in upper management level of the automotive industry, as a result of volunteer work he was doing in a detox center to maintain his own sobriety, Keith trained under an apprentice apprenticed with two of the leading interventionists in the state of Colorado. To date, he has spent more than 20,000 hours working with addicts and their families. Welcome to the show, Keith Bradley. Wow. Yeah. And that bio doesn't give justice, I got to tell you. I mean, I've known this guy for a while, so glad to have you here, bud. Glad to be here, man. Thanks for the invite, both of you. Wow, what an extraordinary resume. My wife's a very good writer. <laughs> is, that, is any of it true? <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, if Marty's writing it, it is. Okay. It's, it's, but it's been an incredible journey. And uh, I did start in an indigent detox center. And uh, the way it got started was is the director uh, one day... If he, if you were in recovery, you could volunteer there. I started showing up there like I had a job. Not because I was a nice guy, because I didn't obsess about drinking whiskey or doing dope while I was there. Mm. It was my my window of freedom, you know, where I could work with those guys. And, and one day the director walked up to me, I'd been doing this for like 90 days, and she said, uh, I know you know about anonymity, and I know you know about the fact that I can't share with you or anybody else that calls in asking about somebody being present there. And I said, yeah. She said, I had a family call today 
looking for their loved one and you know him. Do you mind giving this family a call? I said, no, I won't give the family a call, but I'll go find him on the river. And I went down there and found him. Long story short, <clears throat> his first words to me was, his name was Kim, and his first words to me was, Keith, you'd be the last person I thought would ever show up here with a half pint of vodka. He said, what's going on? I said, well, I want to know if you've ever thought about reconnecting with your family. He said, yeah, I've thought about it a lot, and I'd very much like to, but they don't want anything to do with me. I said, you might be wrong about that. I said, here's the deal. We've got complete medical detox treatment in place. And if you're willing to do this three weeks into the program, I'll fly your family out to see you so you can reunite. The only thing I can tell you is, is when I picked the family up in the airport and brought them back to Greeley and I watched them reunite with their son and their father, something happened. And I didn't know what had just happened, but I'm alcoholic from head to toe. I knew I wanted more. And that was the way it started. And uh, I just started wanting to reap repeat um, what I felt like when I watched them reunite with their family. What did you feel like? A uh, sense of accomplishment. I had achieved about everything I'd ever set out to achieve in the automobile business. And nothing felt as good as reconnecting that family with their loved one. Mm -hmm. And that become pretty standard when they would get a call. They would say, we cannot acknowledge or deny that that person's ever been here. And then you bring me the card. I go find a guy on the river and have the same conversation with him. By the way, I did Kim's eulogy six years ago. He died with an eight-year coin in his pocket. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's kind of how the whole deal got started. And then I got lucky. There was a guy that owns a, a men's treatment center and a good friend of mine was working for him and, and he called me one day and he said, look, your friend told me that I should call you. I said, okay. He said, I want you to come down. I want you to stay all night. I want you to have, we'll have dinner together. First night we'll play golf the next day. And, and uh, I just want to hang out with you. I said, okay. I'd been doing these free interventions at that point probably, I don't know, a year. He said, Keith, you're going to burn out doing free interventions. He said, I don't know anything about your financial situation and don't want to. But he said, we need you. And he set up kind of a, where I should focus on going, who should I try to connect with, with conferences and symposiums and that type of thing. And that's what I did the first year that I started. I, was, I, I did exactly what this guy told me today. It's Bobby Ferguson, that's who it was, and he owns uh, Jay Walker's Lodge. After a year, I said, you know, I really don't want to be a therapist. That's not what I want to do. So I got certified in two different models of uh, intervention, and I don't use either one of them. I kind of shoplifted from four models. I think it does have the underlying foundation of um, Love First, Jeff and Deborah Jay's book. 
it just kind of took off from there. I never knew that there was going to be a company. I got the opportunity to do something like 40 interventions in nine months. What was your first one like? The first one that I ever did uh, wound up being an education at a later date that I didn't see coming. It was a, uh, it was a family, a local family. It was on the wife. And uh, me and husband, two daughters, did the intervention. I live in a small town. And back then it was a lot smaller than it, than it is now because it's grown too. But we got them to treatment and uh, took them up to Harmony and they, they completed treatment. And it was about three months later, uh, I saw the dad and the two daughters in a restaurant locally. And I went over and said hello. And I asked a question I've never asked again since. How's she doing? They were no longer married. It did not turn out successfully. And uh, that was the last time I ever asked. It's lessons like that that I've, that I've learned along the way that uh, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I just, I just knew that my heart ached for these families. And, and I found out that there's been a lot of times that I referred cases to him and I show up and deliver the person that I did the intervention on and say, I want you to know I'm delivering you the, the person that is the most well in this family, much sicker than this person is. <laughs> When you say this person, you're speaking to the the client, the person Addict, who's entering alcoholic. treatment. Yeah, that's very interesting because often parents think that their kid is the one with the quote unquote problem. Not true. What is your perspective on that? The kid becomes their drug. Fascinating. And sometimes the kid is fifty years old. What does that mean? The kid becomes their drug because as a parent myself. We're all obsessed with our kids. We all want our kids to succeed. We worry about our kids all the time. What does it mean specifically that the kid becomes their drug? When the obsession causes harm, it's no longer love, it's enabling. The line between love, in my opinion, the line, finding the, that invisible line between obsessed with your kids and loving your kids and that type of thing and enabling, is one of the most difficult lines for me personally to find with my own kids. They're both in recovery, by the way. 90% of what I do is preparing the family, which usually is 20 to 30 hours of coaching, counseling with all the family members. Nearly every case, there's 20 to 30, 40 hours spent coaching, explaining the difference to families between um, ultimatums and uh, boundaries and how we're going to approach those in the event that we need to for generally a situation that lasts two to three hours with the person we're preparing to meet. Most of the work goes in in working and coaching and counseling with the family. There's a lot of them that are really hard to spin around in a different direction, you know. I call it knowledge from nowhere. They all have some, you know. I think it's one of the most significant pieces to the intervention process there is because if they're not well coached and they're not well trained, it becomes counterproductive. Now, are you coaching them 
on the intervention that's going to take place or are you coaching them on like what are you specifically coaching them to do nearly always uh, if there's a young person involved um, we get to the conversation that is they say I, we don't know what to do anymore and the pat answer usually is you need to close the checkbook that's how it starts and educating them about this individual has no reason to want to get sober. You're paying his rent, you're paying his car payment, you're paying his insurance, you pay his cell phone, you provide him food, you do all everything that normal people have to do on their own most of the time, especially with young people. Um, they do it thinking that at least it'll maintain some contact with them because one of the side effects from addiction is addiction is, is we push the people that mean the most to us the furthest away. And so to counteract that, let me write this check, let me pay you for it, I'm going to take care of you, it's not working. So obviously that's the first piece of it, right? Where it's performing, honestly, an intervention on the family before you perform an intervention on the client themselves. Absolutely. And so there's, in, in our industry, there's been such a huge push towards family coaching and case management after the member has gone into treatment. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I know that for the past couple of years has become bigger because it's one thing to get the client into treatment and coach the family and helping them get to treatment. But when they leave, they go back to that same environment, that same culture, the same belief system, unless the family is able to get help for themselves. Where do you see the value in that? Especially in the past couple, past couple of years where that's really been a huge push. There, there have been a lot of cases, and keep in mind, when I first started doing this 15 years ago, what treatment was, was you have a small group, you meet every day, they detox you first, then you have a small group, and then you maybe see a therapist two times in the 30 days that you're there. Then they do a hot seat where they tell you your liabilities, the other clients tell them your liabilities and your assets, and then they pat you on the back and say, now go to AA. Hmm. And they called that treatment. In the years that I've been doing this, I've watched this entire thing evolve into, if we treat the underlying issues, maybe it raises the odds of them not having the need to self-medicate out the other end. Trauma therapy now is a standard in all the reputable treatment centers. 15 years ago, that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. In fact, everybody was doing the happy dance when it got introduced right. because it was actually a solution to what's going on and it raised what were horrible uh, percentages of success. It increased when we started doing clinical work. Mm -hmm. So it's really about the family component okay. and, and giving them the help that they need. One of the things that I frequently do mm -hmm. is, and and I'm kind about it, but I can't allow them to bring into the process of the intervention um, that sense of need that the only way they're going to be able to help him or her is to write a check. Mm -hmm. and 
in a lot of cases, the treatment centers have their own family program. Mm -hmm. Okay. But before that happened, I would say to a lot of families over the years, and a lot of people were offended by it, and that, look, in order for me to move forward and help you with this intervention, you're going to need to make an appointment with a therapist. If you don't have one, I can give you a recommendation. You're going to need to go to Al-Anon, and you're going to need to prepare for exactly what you're talking about. Because if nothing changes when he or she comes back from treatment, nothing changes. In fact, it's going to get worse from here. Right. Especially when you're coming from an environment that we've had clients that come through our programs and their spouses are actively drinking or using, but they would say, well, my husband drinks worse than me, so he needs to go to treatment first. Yeah, the very last thing you want to happen in an intervention is for them to look at their spouse and say, why are we not doing this on you? Right. You know? One of the things that I do is I, I, I do a conference call throughout the process, of course, now with COVID, that's Zoom, and we do Zoom meetings when I'm doing the coaching prior to, prior to the event. So I talk to everybody individually that wants to talk to me individually. And, and the other thing that happens is in those Zoom meetings is I use a letter writing process. And each person reads their letter to the individual we're doing the intervention on. And by the time I get to the family meeting practice rehearsal, which is the day before the intervention itself, I know exactly who's going to read first. I know who's going to read last. And I'm going to know who's got no chance of reading. I know all of that before we ever get there. <clears throat> and I very well may recommend you don't agree to see a therapist while they're in treatment, don't waste your money with treatment or intervention mm -hmm. because the family has to get well together. It's the only way they're going to be successful. And um, I've seen some pretty miraculous things that happen with, with families, uh, especially now with, like I said, the COVID deal, nearly all therapists are doing online therapy sessions now. Mm -hmm. So they can actually sit in their own home and get therapy rather than having to drive into LA and find an office, you know? Um, same way with Denver or any other state you're in. They can do it in the privacy of their own home. Right. It makes things, it's a lot easier sell for me mm -hmm. because you don't even have to leave your house. I've known you for, how long has it been? Ever since that diner. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've tried to figure it out. I think it's probably seven or eight years. Something like that, right? I've known you for a long time. I, you know, and, and I've I've worked with countless of interventionists, some great, some not great, some in the in the middle. I hold you at an extremely high regard, um, not because you're good at what you do, but because you really care about the people that you connected with and the work that you're. And you can hear that in your voice and how you're talking about it now. And I mean the title of your company, the name of it is Love in Action. Can't get any sweeter than that. So in the book that the foundation of the right. process I use is called Love First. Right. And so I think also because of the growth of the mental health space and the substance abuse space, you see an extremely large growth in the intervention space as well, where you have, you know, 
people classifying themselves as interventionists left and right, just take a three-day course or whatnot, then you can become a certified interventionist. How can a family, because I get these calls all the time, I don't know where to look, I don't know how, like they can look at treatment facilities, they can judge to some degree whether they're good or bad based off of what the description they're getting. But as an interventionist, because there's so many of them out there now, how can families really find the best interventionist? What are the questions they should be asking? What should they be looking for? Well, I'm going to answer your question a different way before Please. I answer the question. And, and that is that through relationships like you and I have, they don't need to look. Right. You've got someone that you trust that you've got longevity with, and that's always the best handoff. They already trust you, or their loved one wouldn't be coming to you. Sure. So that's the best source of a referral that you can get. I spend way more time doing tours than I care to hmm. of, of facilities. And the other thing, it's, it's about the questions they should ask. Uh, are they insured? Uh, do they have references? My wife keeps a file with every card we get, mm -hmm. every grateful email that we get, and it's it all goes into a file. And uh, I tell people when I'm on the phone if they're they're not certain about the direction they want to go with which interventionist, I just call two or three more. All you got to do is go. Very seldom ever. Does it happen that I don't get a call back? From the years of being in business for myself, and the years of being in the car business, and the years as an interventionist, and as an employer, and all of that stuff, I do know one thing that you cannot teach, and that's passion. Mm -hmm. You either got it or you don't. Absolutely. And I choose to surround myself with people that have passion. I choose to surround myself with people that are positive. A lot of times I feel like the family in the beginning is pissing on my leg trying to convince me it's raining. <laughs> and What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is, is I'm the very last person they want to be negative mm -hmm. in this situation. Mm -hmm. and what I mean by pissing on my leg trying to convince me it's raining, I really don't think that we've got a chance of getting him to treatment. Mm -hmm. My reply to that is, is that I recommend that you not be there. You can write a letter that maybe I can read to your loved one. Because if you're negative, the whole intervention has a negative overtone. Mm -hmm. And you can't, I can't have that. We all have to be focused um, Part of the biggest job that I have during the intervention is keeping this thing from getting off its rails. Mm -hmm. I've got to keep the focus always on the individual. I can't allow the individual to make his wife the target. Why are we not doing this on you? You know, it has to be about the person we're intervening on. And if there's anybody that will not conform to that, they're likely going to be asked not to be a team member. For whatever is the best odds of making this work and 
getting from A to B, being from the intervention straight to treatment, um, I'm just not going to allow a family to set me up to fail. Hmm. And it's not about me, but it's my obligation to the family to make decisions based on doing over 750 interventions and drawn on that experience about what works and what doesn't. I read that your success rate was 75%. How do you measure that success? Is the success measured by going to treatment? Is it by having long-term abstinence from substances? How would you measure that success? The only way that I consider an intervention to be successful is going directly from the intervention to treatment. Mm -hmm. Especially when you, when you stop and think about it, the other 25% that don't go that day, 40% of that 25% go within the next seven to 10 days. You've seen it. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that happens, that I don't consider that a successful intervention. 75% is based on straight from the intervention to treatment. No, we're not going Monday. In fact, we've got a medical staff waiting on you right now. And we've got a flight here in about three hours. But that's what I consider a successful intervention. There's a lot of the families that I work with that maintain contact. I don't do case management um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is I don't have time, and that's a huge responsibility for somebody to take on. Huge responsibility. And I don't want to be that guy that says he's a certified case manager and they can't get a hold of him. Never gonna do that. Now the treatment centers, um, for the most part, are providing with some case management, are providing the family with all of the things that keeps it coming from a third party. Mm -hmm. I think it has a better win rate that way than it does yeah, it definitely has better outcomes. I, I think case management has to happen internally. I mean, oh, I do too. you know, I, I think it's harder for the programs to provide case management services to the family members themselves while they're in treatment because it would require, you know, there's always this theory. It's like we should create a treatment program for families where while the resident is in treatment, the, the, the actual. There's actually two. Right. That I can tell you about right now. Oh, that actually do exist. Yes, please. Sure. Uh, once the bridge. Okay, so they have a family program. That's all they do. Okay. That's all they do is work with families, and there's another one in Florida. That's amazing. That's amazing. And uh, he, he's, a, he's, sent, he's a book of resources. By the way. <laughs> Good I've to know. Sent a lot of people to the bridge. Where's the bridge located? Uh, it's in Oregon, I think. Let's get a plug. Yeah, um, that's a dream of mine. It's uh. On the on the on the ranch on my land, or yeah, land. and it's it's not for alcoholism, drug addiction, right? It's for mental health. It's for family therapy. It's so they can go there, they can stay there, or oh, it's residential. Something? Really, that is incredible. In addition to that, this is going to sound like I'm really plugging them now, but they have two different programs. They have a 15 day program. Mm -hmm. They have a 30 day program. 90-day program and in comparison to drug and alcohol treatment it's about half 
Call twice. Yes. And that lets people that don't have a lot of money be able, you know, most everybody can come up with 10 grand. Well, that's what it costs for two weeks. Mm. And they say, why couldn't I just go to a therapist? And he said, okay, let's just do the math. Basically, if you go to a therapist, how many times are you going to see them twice a week? That would be a lot. Hour at a time? How about 10 days, eight hours at a time? Mm -hmm. Or 14 days at 10 hours at a time? I like that whole lot better. And oh yeah, by the way, you're not smoking a joint or drinking a beer after you get done with your therapy. Well, and it coincides with the the the, the, the addict who's currently in residential treatment. Absolutely. Absolutely, they're in it together. Let's heal together. Let's heal together. Yeah, that and, is some of my favorite groups to run is teaching families how to communicate. Like the healing that occurs is so profound. I I agree with you, and I had a case not very long ago that was very well-known person. His approach to trying to help direct his daughter's life, who, by the way, was 32, um, was all wrong. And I got this girl to treatment and delivered her. And they were one of the families that I said to the father, if you're not going to seek therapy for yourself, not going to move forward because if nothing changes nothing changes and my prayer is is that you're going to get your daughter back and my prayer for her is she's going to get her family back not the one that is got a gps on her car to find out where she's at every minute of the day she's 32 the one that well she you know she's she's dating that deadbeat and you know it's just just constantly, mm-hmm. um, it make it, it make me want to drink too. To watch out the other end of this family healing while their daughter was in ninety days worth of treatment, and getting a family phone call with mom, dad, and daughter. There's no amount of money worth that. Mm-hmm. You know that's that's what we do this for their entire family healed. And it takes sometimes long-term treatment, not only for the addicted person, Mm -hmm. but for the family too. And with her being in 90 days treatment, it gave them time. Keep in mind, I kept nudging them along and making certain that they were were connecting and and following up and they have to sign a release for me uh, so that I know the truth. If I could have the outcome of every case, it would run parallel with the one that's in my mind. It was absolutely. I think the dog's even better. You know? I bet. <laughs> I, 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 the, the healing was amazing. Dog therapy? And the healing started when I made the phone call and said, we're on the plane. Mm. The family began. I said, now it's your, you know what you need to do. And they really like for you to, it's still early in the day, I'd like for you to do it today and make that appointment. And they did. What do you feel the families are healing? Codependency, I hate that word. Why, I love that word. I, I feel like it. it's at the root of so many issues, underlying mental health issues. 
codependency itself, I don't think is a mental health issue. I think codependency is created by other mental health issues. Mm. I don't like the word codependency. That's Why? Just, just me. It's a label that everybody uses. Isn't everything? No. You don't think so? No. And I have families telling, you know, I know I'm probably codependent. They can diagnose themselves. It's like families saying, I think he's bipolar. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I get it all the time. <laughs> or borderline. Border, or borderline. What I love to do when we're doing a Zoom, Zoom meeting and they say, I'm pretty certain that he's bipolar. I, I always say, which one of you diagnosed him with that? I forgot when you go to business school, you also get your psychiatric right, degree. Well. Right. But I like the word enabling. To me, codependency is the extreme side of enabling. Where the child becomes their drug. That's total codependency. I've done interventions with people, four people. This one family in particular that I'm thinking about, this guy's sister is in Canada. And I said, I called her, said, hey, we're headed over to your brother's house. Meet with him right now. She said, well, don't go now. He's at the gym. I said, how do you know that? She said, I'm tracking his car. Mm-hmm. You're tracking your brother's car from Canada? To wherever we were at in the United States, really? That's codependency. <laughs> that's that's the extreme. I also think 97, 98% of every addict or alcoholic that I've worked with has mental health issues. I know in my own case, I had this unsatisfiable need to self-medicate. And I get the trauma, the underlying trauma treated, and I have no more need to self-medicate, and it's a lot easier for me to get sober. The whole thing about doing clinical work instead of just patting them on the back and saying, now go into AA. And I want you to know, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm not saying anything negative about that. I just don't think you have to go to treatment and pay for it to get the 12 steps. But I like the, uh, the fact that it's underlying. And I love the clinical thing has, how, think about it in your own case. Mm-hmm. How much more clinical work are you doing today than you were when you first started? Mm-hmm. It's an incredible amount. I've watched the whole industry head in that direction. The addict's not always right, and the family's not always right. It's okay to not be right. Let's, let's figure out some place where we can reunite. I can tell you that uh, I'm not very proud of the fact that I lost the right to see my own grandchildren. But that's what had to happen with me. And today, when it made me so angry at the time, that was the boundary my son decided to put in place before I quit. What a hard boundary to instill. You know, and, and the way he did it, he, they, they, had, they live in a different state, and they'd come to Colorado to see us and. It was 11 o'clock in the morning, and I was making pictures of uh, Bloody Marys. And of course, I started about 7 o'clock in the morning, so 10 o'clock, I'm pretty well slurring my words and got a nod on. And I told him, I said, I'm not feeling well, I'm gonna go lay down for a little while, you know, and so I'd get refreshed and get back up and start drinking again. And when I got back up and come downstairs, he said, Dad, I can't have you come around the kids anymore. He said, it's too unpredictable. Mm -hmm. He said, uh, 
I just don't think it's in their best interest. Three of those grandkids, I was the first one to put a golf club in their hand, teach them how to play golf. Second to the oldest grandson is coming out in June to spend five days with me doing nothing but playing golf with Grandpa. So I ha I've had the experience I don't want you to think my family's normal. They're not. I don't think any family is normal. <laughs> not, not at all. You know, we're we're the definition of a broken family. But it's about as good as it's ever been. And as it turns out, neither one of my sons were sober at that time. They both have gotten sober as a result of watching what happened with me. It's amazing. And I don't want to get off on this being a speaker meeting or anything, but I, I'm just telling you that <laughs> I not only have witnessed families healing together. I've had that experience in my own family. We're all in recovery. My oldest son's wife, my oldest son, their, his son needs to be, <laughs> you know, it's, it's right down through the whole list. My youngest son is recovering alcoholic too. The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. One of the families, things that families ask me frequently is, do you think it's genetic? And I said, I think it's so prevalent that it can appear to be genetic. Do I have anything to base that on clinically? No, I don't know whether it is or not. I think it's so prevalent that you can take a, a room full of 100 people and if there's one person in there that says they're not affected in any way with drugs and alcohol throughout their entire family, it would be unusual. So I think it's so prevalent that it appears that it can be genetic. Did you getting sober introduce you to spirituality or were you spiritual before you got sober? Great question. I was born and raised in a Baptist home, a Southern Baptist home. Wow. I'm talking about we did training union on Thursday, prayer meeting on Wednesday, Sunday morning church service, Sunday night, four times a week. Can't get more spiritual than that. And it wasn't spiritual. There was nothing about it spiritual. And I would listen to this this guy stand up there and pound on that podium and say, if you drink or if you lust after your neighbor's wife or you dance or you smoke, you're going to burn in hell forever. I'm seven and I've already done all the above. Right. I knew I was doomed. And... I would sit in that congregation, and, and I don't know if you've ever been to a Southern Baptist church or not, but some of them are pretty vocal. You know, I mean, can I get an amen is constantly going on. And then other people start throwing amens in, you know, that weren't even asked for an amen. And I'm sitting there, and I can remember this happening when I'm still in grade school. And I'm leaned over, and I'm looking at these people and watching this Holy Ghost get all over them, and I'm saying, and that haven't had to be. Why am I not getting what they're getting? And then my sister got brain cancer. And she spent the last 10 years of her life in a nursing home in diapers and never spoke another word. And I made up my mind at that point, if that was God's work, I wanted nothing to do with God. So when I got sober, I was angry with God. I was your client that says, steps don't work for me. Don't talk to me about God. 
and uh, my mentor and my sponsor, Leo, God rest his soul. I knew how to talk the talk. I've been around that aid, I've been to treatment six times, you know, come on, I know. So when we decided we were gonna to get together, I said, I suppose it's probably time for me to start looking and doing another inventory. And he said, no, we're gonna start with the first step. I said, really? I said, you know I was sober one time, 12 years. He said, was is the key. He said, let's see if we can figure out something that can keep you sober from now on. We got to the second step, which by the way is my favorite step of all 12. And me too. Since, <laughs> since that time, you know, I never got it in six different treatment centers, and here's why. There's so much stuff going on in step two. Came two. We talked about that. Believe in a power that's greater than me. In order to be need, have a need to be restored to sanity, that means you got to be insane. I really didn't think I was all that insane. So there's so much stuff going on in step two that it took a guy that was about five foot one from Holland with a real thick Dutch accent. And I'm so vain that it, I didn't have hearing aids at the time and needed them. So I had to, when he would talk to me, I'd have to get very close and, and watch his lips and make sure I was trying to filter through the thick accent and all that kind of stuff to hear what he had to say. And he was perfect for me. We stayed in step two for two years until I came, believe, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Mm. But we had to identify all of the insanity before I was willing to say, I need to be restored. Then my glitch came. I don't know that I was ever sane, even before I drank or used. So we had to work through that. Step three was, to me, as big as wedding vows. Made a decision. Turned my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand it. I had never made that kind of commitment to God before. See, I'm still angry. If he's a loving God and he does all these wonderful things, why do you give my sister brain cancer? And it, it, if you give a brain cancer, why couldn't she just die? Why didn't she have to lay there in diapers for 10 years? It was probably about a year into it. Leo looked at me one day and he said, how are you doing with that resentment you had towards God about your sister? I said, well, I was going to talk to you about that. I said, my thinking changed to now. I'm the luckiest guy you know. I'm the only guy who got to be her. Mm. without intending to head in that direction he knew exactly how to get me there and he let it play out over time and through the intensive step work we done we did he made a recommendation that I see a trauma therapist not one of the six treatment centers we all did the hot seat mm. we all did the assets and the, you know all that kind of stuff and a couple of them, we even painted a cup, you know. That didn't seem to help either. When I got involved with a trauma 
therapist. I had never said the things out loud that I said to that person. And once I did, I started to heal. And today I don't have a need to self-medicate. I'm, I'm almost 2,000 miles from home. Probably 1,500, maybe. 15 or 1,800, probably. I can honest to God tell you that I have not had a thought of a drink since I've been here. And I ate with a friend of mine last night in a steakhouse that the only seats available were at the bar. We both sit at the bar. I've never had one desire to drink. And it got removed when I completed the third step. I completed the third step um, about the same time that I was going through the trauma therapy. But uh, I'm just going to tell you, I don't fight it anymore. The treatment centers that I refer to today, I told you about this before we started too, I, a lot of times when I haven't been there before, as I'm walking through, I'm looking for the 12 steps. I'm looking for the 12 traditions. Where y'all keep your big books? Apparently you got them here. Where's your big books? I want to know that in their spare time, in the evenings when most of them are free, are we going to AA meetings? Are we getting comfortable with the idea of being in the recovery community? Even if you're not going to stay here, can you kind of educate them about what it's all about? I can tell you for this alcoholic, two things saved my life. Alcoholics Anonymous, trauma therapy. I, I find it fascinating and, and appreciate that every time you, before you do an intervention, you always tell me this, I've centered, my, centered myself, I've meditated, I'm in a good place. And I, it, it, it's just, that's so amazing that you do that literally before every intervention. I did it today before we came in here. Yeah. And I have found through prayer and meditation, this card file up here, it's tired. But if I take the time on a daily basis to pray and meditate, it seems like it gets rejuvenated. Memory gets better, you know, that type of thing. I had a guy ask me not very long ago, he said, why do you do that every day? I said, it's real simple. I have to. Because if I don't, when my feet hit the floor, there's a fight going on. With whom, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? What direction I go? Whoa, whoa, whoa. And then I got to, I got to turn off the noise. With this process of prayer and meditation, by the time we build through the Zoom calls, and the, the conference calls, and the individual calls, and everything. By the time we get to the family meeting practice rehearsal, which nearly always is in a different place than the family meeting practice rehearsal, because we don't want to do it anywhere where the person we're being on would walk in accidentally. All of the information that I've gathered to that, I've never been in the house where we're going to do the intervention. I always ask for a picture of the person we're intervening on, because it helps me to focus on what my task is, who it's with. And it kind of gives me a feeling that I kind of already know them, you know, with all the information I've got now, I know what it physically looks like. Before each step of the process, I pray and I meditate. And when it gets down to the day before, I know exactly who needs to go first, who needs to go last. 
until we get them delivered to the treatment center they're going to, the job's not complete. We don't hand them off to a transport company. I mean, it makes more sense for me to be on the plane with this guy. And nearly all of them, we have a pretty good rapport. You know, it's just, it's, it's based on the same theory as Alcoholics Anonymous. It's one alcoholic addict sharing with another alcoholic addict. And the magic takes place. Even though the last thing he intended to do was meet me that day and be told, we've got a flight in four hours. If you could give yourself one piece of advice to younger Keith, what would it be? To the Keith just starting out in this world as your in your role as an interventionist, what would you tell that young man? It's not for everybody. You have to physically do one before you can make a decision on whether it's anything you want to do again or not. People asking me what when I first started what I did and what I felt like I did for a living was buy coffee and donuts for therapists, you know, or bagels or whatever it was because I didn't know anybody. And I always try to look for what everybody else is overlooking. And sometimes it's very obvious. There was nobody focused on therapists at that time. To this day, I get referrals from therapists. Somebody I bought coffee and bagels for probably <laughs> 15 years ago. They've kept my card. They've got an interventionist that they felt good about and they stick it in the file. I guess the answer to your question would be is, is find your niche. I probably am on 75 to 90 referral lists in different treatment centers nationwide. You want to know what's ironic? I probably only refer to 10 of them. I'm not shocked. Yeah. Well, buddy, I appreciate... Oh, I appreciate I appreciate you flying out for this. This yes. is amazing. Our first fly-in interview. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Um, and you know that I love you and I respect you more than, more than most. Yes, I do you. And... Um, and again, I appreciate you coming out. Again, everybody, this is Keith Bradley, one of the top interventionists in the country. Love in action. His wife is 10 times better than he is. <laughs> no question. Um, Just like you, Arthur. Yeah, my wife. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> um, and anyways, appreciate you coming in. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to us. Uh, please follow us on all of the podcast channels, Apple, Spotify. And look forward to having you guys tune in for all the future ones. Thanks, Thank guys. guys. Thank, Thank you, Keith. Thank you, guys. Thank you.